You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. Glad you could join me on today's Monday edition of the live YouTube channel, Question and Answer Time. Uh, my name is David Guzik. Uh, I have a commentary on the entire Bible that many people use at EnduringWord.com, and there's a lot of other people who use it on the Blue Letter Bible. And then it's also available on some other various platforms and such, but those are the two main places people use it, and absolutely free they use it at those places. So uh, because I've been studying the Bible and been a pastor and been involved in ministry for a long time, uh, one of the things I like to do is answer questions. So right now, uh, I'm having twice a week on Monday afternoons and on Thursday afternoons where I have a question and answer time. Uh, it used to be just one day a week during this whole coronavirus uh, difficulty. We've increased it to two days a week. Uh, pretty soon, we're going to be cutting back and only having the Thursday question and answer session. But I'm happy to be here with you today on a Monday. And as is our normal pattern, we begin with a lead question that's coming through email or a comment or something else. And so the lead question for today, I'm going to summarize with this phrase. I'll read the question in greater detail. But the question is basically this. How did Jesus change in the incarnation? Again, how did Jesus change in the incarnation? And this is a question that comes from Manuel from uh, Germany. And it it begins with this question. I'm going to read his question, maybe summarize it a little bit, but read it. He says, in what way is God immutable? Now, immutable means unchanging. So in what way is God unchanging or immutable? He continues, on the one hand, we have the clear teaching of Scripture concerning God's immutability. And he gives forth many passages of Scripture that talk about this. On the other hand, we have the clear teaching of Scripture concerning the incarnation of Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1, verse 14. Um, that Jesus took part of flesh and blood, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2. So here's Manuel's question. If God does not change, then how was it possible for him to become human? It would be a heresy to say that God was always a man. It would equally be a heresy to say that now, before the Father, stands something else than a God-man. Before the incarnation, Jesus is God. After the incarnation, he's the God-man. Human nature is added to the divine nature. Wouldn't one describe this as a kind of change? Uh, is there a logical conclusion to this question that you're able to explain or is it more like two teachings in Scripture that are to be accepted by faith, which cannot be brought into coherence? Um, I'd be thankful to hear your thoughts and perspective on this question. So, Manuel, thank you very much for your question. I think it's a great question. And I do just want to say that I got a very similar question from somebody named Oscar, who recently wrote in, and his question's more compact form. He just simply says this. What was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, like in pre-incarnate eternity? Did God change 
when he got a human body. Okay, well, we need to begin with just some kind of uh, basic parameters. And in some of this, I'm going to be repeating some of what Manuel and Oscar said as they presented the question. But on the one hand, we have this. We have the fact that one of the basic characteristics of God is that he is immutable. That is, he is unchanging. And we would say that this is true of Jesus Christ himself. Matter of fact, one of the clear statements about the immutability of God and of Jesus Christ is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I mean, that's a pretty clear, Jesus is the same. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. This, together with many other scriptures, uh, some of which uh, Manuel quoted in his uh, question, God is unchanging. He's immutable. God doesn't get old. God doesn't get diminished in his mental capability. Uh, there are many things that happen to people through the years that just doesn't happen to God. Again, because he's immutable, he's unchanging. Now, on the other hand, and this is what both Oscar and Manuel are drawing attention to, something happened in the incarnation. In the incarnation, and Manuel stated it very well, humanity was added to deity. Before the incarnation, God the Son was presumably, we don't have any evidence to the contrary, God the Son was like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in that he was a spirit. He was a spirit. In other words, he had no material form. Now, hold that thought for a moment because I'm going to get a little more expansion on that in just a minute. But before the incarnation, the normal state of God the Son was to be a spirit. Um, again, as God the Father and as God the Holy Spirit. There came a time in God's plan when God the Son added humanity to his deity. Now, I, I do want to clarify one thing. We say that God the Son before the incarnation was a spirit. And I, I believe that's true, even though I can't point to a specific verse that tells us that. It seems to be just a, a logical, theological you know, uh, application or extension of an idea. However, we would say that God the Son was a spirit that on occasion appeared in human form. What do I mean by that? Well, what I'm referring to is what people often call theophanies. And the theophany is simply this. It's an appearance of God in some kind of human form before the incarnation. There are several places in the Old Testament where God, either as himself or as somebody identified as the angel of the Lord, appears. And from the things surrounding the text, we find out that this is actually God appearing to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to Manoah and his wife in the book of Judges. And I could go on and on. There's several other occasions where the Lord, Yahweh, God, the covenant God of Israel, 
appears in some human form. Now, we would say that that was a appearing of God the Son before his incarnation in what we would assume was a temporarily assumed human form. Um, so we, we have that idea that the normal existence of God the Son before the incarnation was as an immaterial spirit, but in certain times and purposes, he would assume a human appearance and appear among men because we have evidence of that in the Old Testament. So how do we get around this idea? Did not God then change in the incarnation? And you can see why this is a good question. Before humanity was not added to deity, now humanity is added to deity. Isn't that a change for God? And therefore, doesn't that take away the idea that God is immutable, that, that God is unchanging? Well, all right, I, I'm going to venture forth and give an answer to this. And um, I don't know, you're welcome to check out my answer. I hope you'll be a Berean. And if for some reason I'm not thinking this argument right, if I'm not thinking these this in a biblical way, I'd be interested to hear about it. Um, but he, here's what kind of came to my mind. We know that the plan God had for God the Son to add humanity to his deity and to come and to live among us and even to die for the sins of humanity at the cross and to raise again, of course. We know that all of that was in the heart and the mind of God the Father from the, the triune God from eternity past. And because it was, in fact, in the heart and mind of God from eternity past, in this sense, it was not a change when it actually happened. It was something, the carrying out of something that already was in the heart and in the mind of God. You will find more than one instance in the Bible where God speaks of things in the future as if they have already happened. And the reason why God can do that is because he's God. And you can say that there's a sense that with God, everything is in the eternal present. Now, we don't know exactly how time connects with eternity, but we're just saying we know that it's different. We don't know exactly how it's different. We just know that it's different. And because the incarnation was in the heart and mind of God from eternity past, it's as if it existed from eternity past. Let me give you an analogy in this. Would we say that God changed when he created the heavens and the earth? Because we believe that God is separate from creation that at least in theory, all creation could vanish and God would still exist. And there was a time before God created everything. So check this out. If it's true that there was a time before God created anything, and then he created, did God change when he created things? Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, yes, he did change. Because before he was not a creator, 
Now he was a creator. He actually accomplished it. But on the other hand, more rightly, you would say, no, in the big picture, God didn't change at all. The capability for him to be a creator was always there. The plan and the purpose was in his mind and his heart to always create. So it would be entirely consistent that God did not change when he created things. He just carried out what was in his heart and mind all along. I would apply the same principle to the incarnation. So we can say with confidence, Jesus is the unchanging God. We can say with confidence that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But there is some way that in God's ways and in God's works, things that are in his heart and mind can be considered accomplished facts even before they actually take place. So that would be the best answer I have. I don't know if it's the greatest answer. There's no doubt there's been much better theological minds than mine that have thought through this idea and, and maybe come up with better answers. But Manuel, Oscar, that's the answer I would give you, that because it was in the heart and mind of God from eternity past, there's a sense in which this was not a change that God actually did it. Okay, let me get to another question that's come in, and this is a special question because it comes from a special person. Uh, it comes from my mother-in-law, Gunnel, in uh, Sweden. Uh, by the way, uh, she wanted to know about the figure right here. Right here is the little Playmobil figure of Martin Luther. Uh, she's not the only one who's asked about that, but I, I put him up here on a higher place and right upon a set of books that I have that are great books about church history. Okay, and anyway. Let me let me answer this question. Uh, Gunnel asks, and she says, um, "What language was spoken uh, before God separated the languages at the Tower of Babel?" Well, that is a great question. What language did humanity speak before God separated the nations at the Tower of Babel? And wasn't that in Genesis chapter nine? I think it was Genesis chapter nine, the division at the Tower of Babel. I might be incorrect on that, but it's nine or ten, something like that. Now, uh, I would say, and I can't say this with complete confidence, but I would say this. I'd say it was Hebrew. Why? Well, because any dialogue we have in the Bible from the time before the Tower of Babel, it's all presented to us in Hebrew. When God said, let there be light, the only language that we know he would have spoken in is Hebrew. If he did speak it in another language, we know nothing about it. So whatever God spoke in the Old Testament was in Hebrew. Whatever human beings spoke before the division of languages at the Tower of Babel seems to be in Hebrew. So I don't know if we can say that we know for certain what language was spoken by humanity before the Tower of Babel and the separation of languages there. But I can say the only language that's suggested to us from the Bible is Hebrew. Now, I know that there are linguistic scholars that might have a very difficult time with that. I know that there's all sorts of sophisticated ways that they can trace back languages. I'm speaking as someone who has zero familiarity with any of those lines of research. I'm speaking just from a biblical perspective. Biblically speaking, 
the only language we know of being spoken before the power, Tower of Babel. I almost said the Bower of Tattle. No, the Tower of Babel. The only language we know of being spoken before that time is Hebrew. So if somebody had to pin me down for a biblical answer, that's what I would give. Okay, let me go over to the chat window now and take a look. Um, let me do just say a couple things before we go, or at least one. I do want to remind all of our viewers that having begun during this whole coronavirus season, we have started putting out a daily devotional uh, that's just anywhere from three to five minutes long normally that comes up on my YouTube channel. It gives you another reason to subscribe to the channel, to let other people know about it, to click on notifications. If you want to be notified, um, notifications, I guess, is the little bell that appears somewhere that tells you you can be notified about it. And, uh, you know, of course, if you like the videos, that apparently helps with the visibility of them. So I, I do just want to remind people that I have a daily video devotion that I'm putting out every morning. At least it's morning time when it comes out uh, in the USA. Uh, other parts of the world, of course, you got to deal with your own time zone. But I have a daily devotion that comes out, and you may want to subscribe or get notifications to the channel just to be notified of those. All right, let me go over to my side chat here and take a look at some of the questions that have come in. We have a question from Jose who asks, what is the difference between the throne of grace, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and the holiest of holies, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, that Hebrews talks about and what is our responsibility in each place? Jose, I would say simply this. Um, without turning to those specific passages, although I'm interested in the Hebrews chapter 10 passage, Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19, where we read, uh, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. All right, we get this terminology about the holiest or the holy of holies from the tabernacle, which was later expanded and made into a permanent building as the temple for Israel. And basically, what God gave Israel to build as a tabernacle, you'll find this in the book of Exodus, was a model, in some respect, of God's throne room in heaven. So the holy of holies in the tabernacle and later the temple represented what we might call, and again, we're speaking by analogy because we're trying to match earthly things with heavenly things, but to the best of our ability, we would consider it to be the throne room of heaven. So if you want to talk about the holiest of holies, that's the throne room. In Hebrews chapter 4, the throne of God is described as a throne of grace. Again, very important for us to understand that God's throne is understood to be a throne of grace, where we find help and mercy. Now, that's not the only thing we know about God's throne. The Bible talks to us about the righteousness of God's throne, the justice of God's throne, the holiness of God's throne. But really what we're talking about is a different images and different descriptions of the same thing. 
the throne of God in heaven and the throne room of God. And there's really not different rules for coming to them. We can come into God's presence by the authority and in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't come before God and have this tremendous access to the throne of God because we're so wonderful, because we're such great people. Not at all. We have this access because Jesus Christ, because of his great work at the cross and the empty tomb, has opened up the throne of God to those who will come by faith in the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So really, what we're just talking about is slightly different terminology to talk about the same idea, God's throne, a throne of grace. Okay, uh, so let me move on to the next question. Dom asked the question, is it bad to ask God to show you a sign? Is that considered testing God or does it depend on him? Well, Dom, let me say that ideally we should not ask God for signs to prove himself. Now, I'm going to qualify that just in a moment uh, for a little bit. But in general, let me say, we should not ask God for a sign. God has given us many reasons to be confident in who he is and for what he has accomplished for us on the cross by the word of God. And resting in God's word, resting in the promises of his word, we really don't need additional signs. God has given us enough evidence in his word. So I don't have to say, Lord, if you're real, give me a sign from heaven. No, you can know the reality of God and the promise of God and the plan of God and the path of God from his word. Now, there may be certain situations where God gives us a sign that confirms his way, his will for us. But I don't think that that's the kind of thing that should be sought. And it certainly can be a manifestation of unbelief to certainly demand a sign from God. We shouldn't be in that place where we're demanding signs from him. So, Dom, we need to put our focus on God's word and the promises of God given to us in his word and not put our focus upon signs. You know, here's the thing about signs is that it's possible for signs to be variously interpreted. And I've seen it happen before where the same sign, so to speak, will happen and one person takes it as a yes the other person takes it as a no. What? Well, how do you know? Again, our real source of confidence is by what God reveals to us in his word. So there may be times where God confirms things in our life by signs. I've had that experience in my life, but that's not the real confidence that we're resting in and looking for. We're looking for what he brings to us in and through his word. Agnes asks a question. Hi, Pastor David. If Jesus died on a Friday, how is it three days if he rose from the dead on Sunday? Well, Agnes, you're asking a very good question. And because Jesus said that the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, there are more than a few people who have um, thought that Jesus had to have died not on Thursday, not on Friday, 
but on Thursday. And there's some people who make a big deal about this. Um, I think that that's certainly possible, but I don't think that it's necessary because of what Jesus said about three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. I believe that that specific instance is made in the Gospel of John, maybe chapter two, three, something like that. I think more John chapter two, where Jesus talks about him being like Jonah in the belly of the earth, three days and three nights. And this is why I say that, is because anytime we're approaching the Bible, we have to be aware that just like we use idioms in the way that we speak, in Bible times, they used idioms as well. And so we might use an idiom that says basically, well, they really got off the track. That's an idiom in the English language. Well, we don't mean literally that that person was on a track, like a train would be on tracks, and then it went off the track. It's an idiom that just means, well, you, you got off where you were supposed to be going and you had a place, but you it's a figure of speech that we use. We know from the rabbinic literature of Jesus's day that the phrasing X numbers of days and nights could refer to any portion of a day or a night. There is, and I don't have the rabbinical quotation at hand. You can find it in my commentary, maybe even my commentary on John chapter two, wherever it is that Jesus makes that analogy between himself and Jonah. It's in the rabbinical literature that, and I'm doing a free quotation here, paraphrasing at least, that that phrase, a day and a night, can refer to any portion of a day or a night. So again, we just know this was an idiom of speech used in Jesus's day. Now, does that mean that we know Jesus therefore died on Friday? No, it doesn't mean that because he certainly could have died on Thursday, and it fulfilled that uh, 24 hours, day and night, so to speak. Um, what would that be? That would be 24, 48, 72 hours, whatever it is in fullness. So what I'm just saying is that um, that phrasing, we know this from Levitical liter literature, was an idiom that was used in Jesus's day. It does not demand a day and a night that it be a 24-hour period. It can refer to any portion of a day or a night. So, Agnes, um, whatever people want to do with biblical chronology and try to search out the issue, did Jesus die on Friday? Did Jesus die on Thursday? I say to people, go for it. Do your figuring, figuring it out the best you can. But, but... It's not necessary that Jesus died on Friday to fulfill what he said about three days and three nights. Okay, Kristana uh, says, does 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, forbid women to serve in all areas or, of church leadership, or just as pastors slash elders who teach? What about women on the board of directors as deacons, leaders, ushers, and worship leaders? Christiana, you're asking me a question that, first of all, I want to acknowledge that there is a wide divergence of opinion on this among believers. Now, I certainly have my thoughts, and I'm going to tell you my thoughts in a moment. But I want anybody who's listening to this to realize that different people 
among the Christian family see this in different ways. Now, if you want to know specifically uh, my teaching on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, I recommend that you go to my video on that passage where I'm teaching through 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can find it on my YouTube channel. Just search appropriately and you'll find it come up. But I think I go into some depth exactly what I believe is going on there in 1 Timothy chapter 2. To summarize it, I believe that what Paul speaks about there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is women being in positions of teaching authority, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. I don't believe, based on my understanding of the biblical text there, I don't believe he's talking about two different things when he says a woman to teach or have authority over a man. I think he's talking about one thing expressed in the sense of teaching authority. So I believe that God says for his church, the way God wants his church to be ordered is that women should not be in positions of teaching authority over a congregation in a congregation in general. Here is one of the difficulties, is that there are a fair number of people in God's family who agree on that principle, but they disagree on exactly how it should be carried out. Now, let me say, I think that I am much more comfortable arguing strongly for that principle because I see it, I think, very firm in the scriptures. I do believe there's some latitude where I may agree or disagree with somebody, but I won't call them wrong in their biblical understanding. For somebody who agrees on the principle, but disagrees with how it's to be carried out. So you ask a question, um, if a woman isn't to be in a position as pastor or elder, what about women on the board of directors? Okay, well, here would be my question. If that board of directors has the responsibility of spiritual leadership over the congregation, then I would say that it would be a violation of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and other passages. I don't want to act like that's the only passage in the New Testament that speaks about it, but it is a passage that speaks about it very clearly. I would say that if that board of directors has the responsibility of spiritual leadership over that congregation, that a woman should not be on that board of directors. Now, here's the problem, another problem. People define these boards and institutions in different ways. There are some churches or organizations that have a board of directors, and it is purely something for legal purposes. They have no spiritual authority. Um, sometimes people have a board of directors, and it only has financial input. It doesn't have spiritual leadership over there. Well, then this might change the calculation of whether or not a woman would be involved. But if it is a position of spiritual leadership over the congregation, then I believe according to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and other passages that it should be reserved for women. As for deacons, my reading of the New Testament says that deacons are positions of service and not positions of spiritual authority. And there seems to be some mention of either women deacons or women functioning as deacons in the New Testament. Deacons, I would say, is okay. Um, 
worship leader. Again, as long as that worship leader is in submission, not taking it as a position of spiritual authority, or, or as ushers, I see that as a position more centered on service and not spiritual authority. Now, again, I understand that there may be people who differ on that. They may say, no, um, a usher is a position of spiritual authority because they help serve the Lord's Supper or communion at our church, and that implies spiritual authority. In other words, well, I don't agree. Again, there can be agreement on the principle, but there can be some variation on how the principle is to be applied. So I, I can't give you a categorical answer that this is what should fit for everybody in the body of Christ. But I think I've helped define for you how I see it and how I would work it out in a church where I was the pastor of a congregation. Thank you, Christiana, for that question. Sharon says, God didn't change. He humbled himself and set his deity aside. Well, yes, again, I, I'm going to agree with you on that, Sharon. God did not change. This humble heart expressed in the incarnation was present throughout the existence of God. Um. Luis says, one question today, Mr. Guzik, is it okay for a Christian to join fraternities or sororities? Well, Luis, I got to be honest with you. I really don't know much about the fraternity system or the sorority system. Uh, I did graduate from a university, but uh, I never lived on campus. So I really have no familiarity at all with the fraternity or the sorority system. So I can't say whether or not there would be anything within that system that would violate a Christian's conscience, um, maybe in some kind of oath, maybe in some kind of practice, maybe in some kind of thing that they conduct themselves. I don't know. So I'm afraid I really can't answer the question because I don't have the knowledge whether or not to say that there are things that are inherent within the fraternity or sorority system that would go against what should be required for Christian conduct. So I really don't have a framework for that. Sorry about that, Luis. Carrie asked the question, was King Nebuchadnezzar possessed by a demon when he lived like a beast? Uh, or was it God who caused him to go insane? I was reminded of Job and how God used Satan. Thoughts. All right, Carrie. Well, First of all, when you read that chapter in the book of Daniel that talks about the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, that humbling came from the hand of God. There's really no doubt about that. That humbling came from God's hand. Now, whether God sent that humbling directly from his hand, which is a possibility, or whether the Lord simply took away some protection and allowed a demon to do what the demon wanted to do, I don't think the scriptures say with any kind of certainty, so I don't think I can speak to it. So there's no doubt, though, that that humbling was something that was brought by God's hand. Whether he indirectly allowed a demonic spirit to do it, to accomplish that purpose, maybe, maybe not. That's simply the way that I would explain that situation, Carrie. I hope that's helpful for you. Fernando asked the question, the Bible talks about the millennium and how the earth will be populated. 
Will we glorified Christians after the rapture have the ability to have kids in the millennium and the new heavens and earth? Fernando, I'm going to say no. Uh, Once believers are raptured, once they are resurrected, because make no mistake about it, 1 Thessalonians makes it very clear that the whole concept of the rapture, the catching away of the church, if you want to use the the biblical terminology, this catching away of the church uh, is vitally connected to resurrection. And Jesus specifically said that in the resurrection, believers are like the angels in that they are not married or given in marriage. It just doesn't work like that. So in the resurrection, we will not have the capability to bear children one way or another. So no, I can say that any believer who is resurrected after the pattern of Jesus Christ, uh, that they will not have the ability to have kids based on what Jesus said about our own resurrection bodies. Okay. Uh, Texas asked the question, what exactly is judgment day? Will Christians be judged? Well, Texas, I would say this, that the Bible tells us that there's not just one judgment day. There are several days of judgment. Now, there is the great day of judgment. And I'm not talking about the day Jesus Christ returns to the earth, though that will be a day of judgment. I'm not talking about uh, the judgment of the nations described in Matthew chapter 25. I'm talking about what the Bible describes in the book of Revelation as the great white throne judgment. That is where all of humanity, and I'll accept from that, even though it's a bit controversial, I'll say all of humanity that is not found in Jesus Christ stands before the great white throne of God and is judged and is sentenced ultimately for their rejection of God and of Jesus Christ. So there's that judgment. But the Bible speaks of a judgment that is appropriate for believers. It speaks about it in 2 Corinthians. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that is not a judgment regarding heaven or hell. That's a judgment regarding believers. They're on their way to heaven, but their lives will be judged. And that is a judgment not for heaven or hell, but for reward. And the Bible says that the things of our life that were not done unto God and unto his glory, and I'm paraphrasing the thought, not quoting the exact words there, but the things that were not done unto God and unto his glory and unto the glory of his kingdom, those things will be burned up. It'll be as if they never happened. And that's what will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. So that is a judgment for believers, but it's not a judgment regarding heaven or hell. Look, in heaven, some people will have more reward, greater reward than others. That's just the simple biblical truth. Some will have more reward than others. And the measure of reward will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. That is for believers. Okay, let me go down to a few more questions. Um, Jose says, is hell going to punish the body with everlasting fire? 
What is a biblical hell? What elements of hell are described in the Bible? Well, Jose, you're actually asking three questions there. And to be honest, I'm just going to deal with the first one having to do, will God punish the body with an everlasting fire? And I would say yes, because in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks about the resurrection to condemnation. Now, just a few moments ago in the question that Texas asked, uh, or it was a previous question, or actually it was Fernando's question, we talked about the idea of the resurrection of the body for believers. Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus also says that there will be a resurrection of the body for those who are destined for hell. They will receive a body that is suitable for the sufferings of hell. So, yes, there will be some kind of bodily. Do we know exactly what that's like? No. Can we describe it exactly? No. But it was Jesus who talked about the resurrection of condemnation, a resurrection unto judgment, not just simply a resurrection for those who will be glorified. Let me uh, go on. Gilbert says hello from Bakersfield, California. God bless you, Gilbert. Um, Leslie says, Thanks for being here. Always love your messages. Your sermons are amazing. Always feel like I'm right there in the story. Well, praise the Lord, Leslie. Thank you for your kind words. Um, Jose again says, uh, uh, sorry for many questions, Dave. I just want to know how hell is going to be like grace and peace. Well, we can't perfectly understand what heaven is going to be like. We have words from the Bible that describe it. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, his servants shall serve him. There's a river, there's the throne of God. And we understand that all of that is speaking to us about a reality of a world and a dimension that is beyond us. So can we perfectly understand heaven? No. Can we get some idea from the imagery and the presentation? Yes, but this is what we know. Heaven will be even greater than the limited description that we have of heaven given to us in the Bible. Now, if you turn that around, same is true of hell. Do we know exactly what hell will be like? No, we don't. We have it described as a place of darkness, a place of torment, a place of fire, a place of being alone. We, we have a lot of descriptions of hell. Does it say everything that we are to know about hell? No, not at all. Uh, does it give us a real firm idea? No, but it gives us images. But here's what I want to take. If heaven is going to be even greater than the words describe, isn't it tragic to think that hell is going to be even worse than what the words describe? Heaven and hell are for real. I know we don't talk much about them in the modern day. I don't know why exactly. Heaven is real. Hell is real. And those are important realities to keep in mind. Uh, let me go to a few more questions here. Um, Graham says, Hello, David. Should Christians be buried and not cremated when they die? Would be interesting to hear what your opinion is on this one. God bless you from Graham and Sue, Manchester, UK. Well, God bless you, Graham, and to all our brothers and sisters in the UK. 
uh, I love visiting UK and I, I look forward to when I can again. Anyway, to your question here, Graham, um, let me just speak to you. The Bible does not say anything that would prohibit cremation. As one person has said, cremation does to a human body in 30 minutes what 10 years in a grave does. It just decomposes it, sends it to ashes. As in, and this is from the Church of England prayer book at a funeral, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is what happens to a human body. And it can either happen over 10 years buried, or it can happen in 30 minutes in a crematorium. Okay, so there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits cremation. Now, I do want to be very honest. By tradition, many Christians have been against cremation, and they've been against it because they feel that it denies or at least works against the principle that God will resurrect these bodies. And here again, once again, where this is a big theme through this question and answer time, talking about the resurrection. They have believed that cremation is a denial of the idea that God will resurrect these bodies. But the truth is, is that given enough time, everybody's body is going to turn to ashes or dust. God will have to resurrect these bodies from the molecules that are left over. And he can do it. So let me just say, there are some Christians who by tradition are against cremation, and I can respect that, but I just want to recognize it's a tradition. It's not a biblical command. And if people want to observe their traditions, they're free to observe them or to not observe them. What we ultimately live by is what the Bible teaches. So I hope that's helpful for you, Graham. Thank you for asking that. Um, Brad says, even if God changes his form, he's still God. Amen. Um, Raquel asks, uh, do you regularly or otherwise speak in tongues? And do you know what your gifts are in the spirit? As the Bible says, everyone has gifts. Thank you. Okay, Raquel. I am a person who believes in the existence and the evidences of the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. I believe that when the Bible talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, that that is not something that died out with the apostles or the first century church. Now, I think that there are many people who are unbelievably confused. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they just think that the gifts should work a certain way. In other words, uh, if somebody has the gift of healing, they should be able to heal whoever they want, whenever they want. You know, the, the Bible never gives us the indication that the gift of healing worked like that. Um, everything that Jesus did, he did by a constant reliance on his Father in heaven. Jesus said that he didn't do anything except what the Father tells him to do. So do you realize every person that Jesus healed, it was because his Father told him, I want to heal that person, heal him. And I think the same thing can work today. All right, but back to this idea of tongues. Yes, I do believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And I believe that I have, and sometimes I do, pray using what some people call a prayer language, some people call the gift of tongues. For me, 
It's very important to understand what the gift of tongues is for. I believe that the Bible teaches us that the gift of tongues is a gift that God gives for our communication with him. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to man, but to God. It's a gift God gives us for our communication with him. And it's for when we sense that we have a need to communicate with God in a way that transcends our human intelligence or understanding. Therefore, we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to work outside of the realm of human intelligence and understanding, and I'm going to use this gift if God has given that gift to a person. So I hope that answers uh, your question. Do I know what the gifts in the Spirit are? Um, well, Raquel, I would say that I think God has given me the gift of, of um, uh, teaching God's Word. I believe God has given me a, a, a pastoral gift to be able to shepherd God's people. Um, maybe there's other gifts that God has given to me, but those are just a few that come to mind immediately. And let me just say that there is so much more that could be said about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, it, it's a subject that I'm hesitant to speak on, not because I'm afraid to speak on it, no, not at all. But it's hard to say just a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if what I've said right now has created 20 other questions in somebody's mind. And they can be valid questions, but I don't have all day to do this live question and answer. And uh, I would recommend that me maybe go to the website, EnduringWord.com, look for my teaching on spiritual gifts, and you can get a better idea of, of my understanding of those things. Thank you for that question there. Joy, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Jane says, has Jesus always been in human form? Sometimes it looks that he appears to Old Testament people as human, though he is not named. All right, Jane, I'm going to say that no, when Jesus appeared to people in human form as the angel of the Lord, as the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, I would regard that as a temporary, just a almost you would almost say momentary taking on of a human form it was not the true incarnation it was not truly adding humanity to his deity but rather simply appearing in a human form because this is what you need to understand when jesus came in the incarnation when he was conceived in the womb of mary by the miracle of god the father not through the normal process of impregnation but by this miracle of the virgin conception and birth, um, he did not just appear as human. He was human, fully human, fully divine. He added humanity to his deity. As far as the references to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh, we would regard those as being only appearances. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik. Not a true incarnation. Word. For more information about All right, a couple more questions. I'm not going to take any more questions. Let me see if I can get through these final ones if they're not too long in answering here. Um, Florence says, God bless you, Pastor David. Don't forget to visit my country, Romania. Well, God bless you. That would be wonderful to visit Romania. I've never visited Romania. 
I visited Bulgaria, I visited Hungary, I visited several countries, Albania in that area of the world, uh, but I have not yet visited Romania. I hear it's beautiful. My wife has visited Romania. Carolyn, hello to you from Louisville. Um, Florian says, David, can you please explain Mark 1525 and John 1914? Please, what time is correct? Okay, well, I think, Florin, you're talking about uh, one of them says, uh, the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus died at a particular hour, and and then uh, John says that Jesus died, and it was a different hour. I'm getting, Maybe one of them says it was the third hour. Maybe another one says the sixth hour. Let me just give you a very quick summary of this. This is due to the fact that there were different reckonings of time in the Roman world and in the Jewish world. They started their clock at different times in the day. So therefore, what would be the sixth hour on one clock might be the third hour on another clock. Really, that's just what it's due to, uh, a difference in the Roman reckoning of when the day began, when the clock started in the day, so to speak, and the Jewish one. Um. Levy says, David, what do you think God's true form is? Well, Levy, I, I would just say that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spirit. They don't have a true form. We can talk about them, as you do in your question, in terms of being spirit and light, but those aren't forms. Those are realities that aren't marked by a particular form. All right, I see that there are some more questions coming up from Florin and Niley in Texas. I can't keep going on and ask, answering every question. I'll take note of these and maybe get to them later. But we're going to wrap it up for today's question and answer. I am so pleased that you could join me today. I pray for God's blessing to be in it. I pray that your families are safe and that if you or somebody dear to you has been touched by this pandemic that has hit the globe, I pray God will bring his comfort and his grace to you in the midst of it, but that each and every one of us will find the love, the power, and the goodness of Jesus in what we do. Thank you for those who pray for the work of Enduring Word, and uh, please keep praying. We want to see God especially use the work of the Bible commentary in translation. So thank you again for joining me today, and I'll be back on Thursday afternoon for another question and answer time. God bless you.